my fellow Americans and all those listening overseas. Welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. I'm your host, Joe Fakash, and today we are on our road back to Monticello and the gravesite of Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States. Now, before we go too far, I always want to remind you to be checking out visitingthepresidents.com where you can find previous episodes, links to associated readings for the presidential sites, my photos from various trips, recommended readings, and so much more. You can also follow the social media profiles at Visiting the Presidents on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where I provide additional content throughout the week. Liking and commenting helps to raise the profile, and I appreciate any of you who've written a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You'll also find a link to help support Visiting the Presidents through PayPal. Your support helps to fund the production, editing, and hosting of Visiting the Presidents episodes and the website, as well as future trips and books. All support is greatly appreciated, but at the top of Mount Rushmore of giving is Sammy and Tom Fakosh, Nancy and Terry Warkamp, Debbie and Dennis Fakosh, Harvey and Casey Hyman, Connie and Adam Luck, Brittany and Keith Mellon, Stephanie Gaskill, and Andrew Alexander. Also, Jim and Catherine Hyman, Gail Rittenhouse, Sean and Liz Jones, Stephen Gilroy, Kurt Dion, Alexis Mira, April McKenzie, Matt and Megan Hoekstetler, Caitlin Cahillan, Jim and Laurel Brailer, Eric N. Gartner, Patricia Argentina, Kyra Steiner, Jamie and Ted Wilson, Candy and Ben Phelps, Lana Demers and Craig Hunter, Kenneth Robinson, Thomas Kalina, Kristen and Steve Wendell, and Alex Hiker. Thank you all so much. I also want to recommend that you go back and listen to the previous season's episodes on each president. For Thomas Jefferson, check out season one's Thomas Jefferson and Shadwell and season two's Thomas Jefferson and Monticello. And we'll pick up the action right where we had left off. Thomas Jefferson had become the second president to be re-elected, winning easily over Federalist Charles Pinckney in 1804. His second term was largely uneventful from a policy perspective, with Jefferson largely deferring to his acolytes in Congress and setting a precedent that would carry throughout the rest of the 19th century, with the president largely taking a backseat to Congress. I know there are exceptions, and we will definitely talk about them. Jefferson had a big fallout with his first vice president, which reached a calamitous end. Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr never truly reconciled after Burr ref- refused to concede after their tie in 1800 that went all the way to the House of Representatives. Burr was replaced on the first ever ticket in 1804 after the passage of the 12th Amendment with George Clinton. Burr then ran to replace George Clinton as governor of New York, but he lost, largely due to the character challenges placed by his longtime nemesis Alexander Hamilton. Burr then challenged Hamilton to a duel and killed him on July the 11th, 1804 in Weehawken, New Jersey, and then was indicted for murder, charges that were later dropped, and fled New York for the New West, allegedly to instigate a war with Spain, where he would then claim part of the new Louisiana Purchase for his own independent nation, with Burr installed as the leader, I should point out. Burr was later tried for treason before Chief Justice John Marshall before being acquitted, but he fled to Europe in disgrace. Jefferson also had a foreign policy debacle with the ongoing tensions with the British impressing American soldiers and the Barbary pirates testing America's responsiveness. Now, Jefferson's response was to push for the Embargo Act, an attempt to throw America's trading weight around with the French and the British and force them to respect America's shipping rights. But the impact will largely be felt by American merchants. 
Jefferson will withdraw the Embargo Act less than a year later, but the damage will have been done. Jefferson also critically raised tensions with natives, setting the nation on a course that would culminate with the 1830 Indian Removal Act. Jefferson criticized South Carolina attempting to reopen the international slave trade, which was abolished decades before with what Jefferson called a, quote, violation of human rights. And he rapidly signed the act prohibiting the importation of slaves, that's what it was called, when Congress passed it in 1807. Now, Jefferson did enjoy showing off the wares of the Lewis and Clark expedition, and he devoted a whole room at the executive mansion to various items that he thought were compelling, including jaws, skulls, and teeth of animal fossils, in addition to native artifacts. For a time, this also included a pair of grizzly cubs that Jefferson placed in a cage on the front lawn, which I would have loved to see for myself. Jefferson spent his time in the executive mansion happily reading and writing, with his family remarking about the afternoon spent singing and whistling. Apparently, he liked to sing to himself when nobody was around. And then he was whistling with mockingbirds that he kept in cages normally, but then would let go free while he was working in his office. And they would, I guess, sing together, which sounds really nice. Now, notably like John Adams before him, Jefferson also mourned the loss of a child while president with his daughter Maria dying in 1804. Now, at the end of his presidency, Jefferson, like Washington before him, had faced that intense criticism at the end of his second term. And so he is going to only be too eager to leave the office. Now, most of that criticism is owed to a sagging economy, which was then pointed to him and the Embargo Act. And he was starting to get criticism within the Republican Party, a faction led by his second cousin and very close ally at one point, John Randolph, who accused Jefferson of bending too far towards Federalists, which really had to sting now that he was ensconced in power. Now, Jefferson had advocated for federal funds to be used for canals and roads, which led Randolph to renounce him and start his own faction called the Tertium Quids, meaning third things. In other words, they're not Federalist and they're not Democratic Republican. And then return to the, quote, principles of 1798 and the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, which Jefferson had helped to author a bit of, you can understand, the tables getting turned on Jefferson. So he is only too eager to give the reins to his chosen successor, James Madison. He wrote, Never did a prisoner released from his chains feel such relief as I shall on shaking off the shackles of power. Nature intended me for the tranquil pursuits of science by rendering them my supreme delight. But the enormities of the times in which I have lived have forced me to take part in resisting them and to commit myself on the boisterous ocean of political passions. Thomas Jefferson rode to the Capitol building with his grandson to attend his close friend's inauguration on March 4, 1809, held in the House chamber. He went afterwards to Madison's temporary residence on F Street, where he stayed close beside James Madison and helped to greet any of the wall-wishers, many of them noting that it seemed like Jefferson was the one coming into office, so excited was he, and how beleaguered James Madison looked standing next to him. Now, Jefferson even attended our first ever inaugural ball held that evening and then went back to the executive mansion where, in fact, he stayed for almost two extra weeks before he departed for a four-day journey back to Monticello. Now, Thomas Jefferson wanted to retire to a life of quietude in Monticello, the home that he had designed and that we discussed in season two, and a project that he viewed as never complete. 
When he had left for Philadelphia to be vice president in 1797, the walls for the original home were still being torn down to double the floor plan, and he was able to supervise the building on his yearly returns to the estate. He usually came in the spring and then midsummer. By the time he retired in 1809, the basement level dependencies were extending out from the mansion, and that includes the kitchen, the smokehouse, the slave quarters, and they had just been complete. Jefferson filled the home with his favorite items, with some of those special features that would then reference his refined taste and his exposure to, yes, European culture. He was always tinkering, adding inventions like the Lazy Susan, the Dumb Waiter, both of which reduced his guests' exposure to the enslaved help, or the polygraph, which would help him write copies of letters. And then there's a contraption I always show students that would be able to hold six books open at his desired place all at the same time, which all of us need, clearly, right? It would be helpful when I'm recording, I would point out. Now, like George Washington, Jefferson was inundated with visitors who climbed the mountain to try to catch a glimpse of Jefferson. Those who did not present themselves as official guests instead roamed the grounds, peering through windows and making Jefferson feel like a caged animal. One woman even broke a window with her parasol to get a glimpse at the president. On the terrace off of his domain, where he had a library and study and bedroom suite, Jefferson installed Venetian porches with screens to extend his living space, but also to give him privacy. Now, even the guests who came in for an official capacity, including President Madison, who the octagonal guest suite was named for, or Daniel Webster, they often brought a large retinue of family and help, with Jefferson sometimes having a full house of over 40. And if you ever go on the behind the scenes tour at Monticello, you see how they would have let people sleep on the floor and you know, just stuff them anywhere that they could on those upper levels. His daughter initially lived a short distance away from Monticello, but due to her husband's instability, she came to live at Monticello and basically took over hosting, bringing with her eight children. Jefferson later wrote to John Adams, I live in the midst of my grandchildren, which I'm sure many of my listeners can relate to. The thing I thought was interesting is she named her children after Thomas Jefferson's friends. So she had children that were named James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, George Wythe. I just thought that was kind of cool. While he was in residence at Monticello, Jefferson started the morning every day with plunging his feet into cold water, which he kept by his bed. And he then began his correspondence, writing letters to over a thousand people per year, often strangers writing to him and getting a response. So many visitors continued to flock to Monticello that Jefferson constructed a second home at Poplar Forest, a retreat outside of Lynchburg that we also discussed in season two. Between these two homes, Jefferson spent his retirement, very rarely going elsewhere. He never returns to Washington and only one other time goes to Richmond in those years after the presidency. At Poplar Forest, he's able to escape, always with his granddaughters brought as company to write and read and relax. It took about three days to travel to the retreat, and they had their kind of favorite route and favorite taverns to stay in. The girls wrote about these days and evenings, and it's, it's very kind of nostalgic, spent with Jefferson and his pet mockingbirds, I should point out, where they would take leisurely walks and then be able to chat over dinner. They would all play these games before dinner or tea, and then they would all turn to their books, and Jefferson would sometimes read aloud to them, sometimes asking about what they're reading, but other times they could look up and he would just be watching them reading with a smile on his face as he returned to his own reading. 
The girls noted that Jefferson was almost never alone, that he wanted to be around them. He wanted to be around other people and didn't like being kind of left to his own devices. And there's this one moment where he's in Poplar Forest and gets snowbound and he writes about going stir crazy. <laughs> like he needs that interaction with other people. I'm the ki- kind of the same way where I love being able to interact with other people. I also like my time spent by myself, especially when I'm researching or writing, especially for the podcast. But I also I'm a people person. Now, unfortunately, what will haunt Thomas Jefferson through his post-presidency is the massive debt, which will be around the tune of $20,000 when he retires, which would be about half a million dollars today. You can imagine how all-consuming that would be. At first, Jefferson believed he would easily be able to pay the debt back once he'd be able to devote all of his attentions to his farm and the operations. He owned over 10,000 acres of property, including, of course, Monticello and Poplar Forest, but also his birthplace at Shadwell, nearby Tufton, and a place called Lego in Abel Marl County. He also owned Natural Bridge, which he purchased from King George III in 1774 and hoped he would be able to capitalize on the tourism of the site. But the farms are not as successful as he hoped, with drought, crop failures, and being poorly managed by some of the people he has to kind of run them, as well as the cost of maintaining the more than 200 enslaved men and women that he still owned, a third of which were children who were too young for the difficult labor. Jefferson also owned several nail-making mills, including one at Monticello, but those also lost money, and he often was bartering for materials just to keep the places operational. Jefferson hosted wildly and was fond of purchasing different kinds of wines and then introducing family and friends to the delicacies that he knew from his time abroad and in the executive mansion, including macaroni, ice cream, olives, and capers. Jefferson also had family and friends, of course, seeking financial help, even writing a large loan for a family member in 1819 that defaulted. When the capital was burned by the British in 1814, Jefferson donated his own books to start the new Library of Congress, over some 6,500 books in total. But it's not completely out of benevolence, but also to pay back some of those debts. Those books, by the way, would be destroyed in a fire in 1851. Jefferson wrote to John Adams, I cannot live without my books. And he immediately goes back to collecting those books once again. And I only laugh because I'm the same way. I I keep telling myself, Joe, you cannot buy any more books. Joe, you have to stop buying books. That does not work. I'm telling you right now. Now, Jefferson in his retirement also will resume his private relationship with Sally Hemings, noting with some detachment the birth of her children, their children, in his ledgers, along with notes about the farm. He never wrote in detail about his attachment to her or explored the contradictions between his most famous writings and his private life and how he conducted himself. But several visitors note the striking physical resemblance between Jefferson and Sally's sons, though there was no overt affection or special treatment which was attributed by contemporaries as kind of just keeping in custom of men of Jefferson's station. While George Washington weighed the impact of freeing his enslaved people on his death, Thomas Jefferson's debts will preclude him from exploring those options, even if he wanted to, but there's no evidence that he wanted to. Now, we talked last episode about how Thomas Jefferson famously will renew his correspondence with his old friend John Adams, on his response to John Adams's initial letter, Jefferson wrote, quote, The letter from you recalls up recollections very dear to my mind. It carries me back to the times when, beset with difficulties and dangers, we were fellow laborers in the same cause, struggling for what is most valuable to man, his right of self-government, laboring always at the same oar, 
with some wave ever ahead threatening to overwhelm us and yet passing harmless under our bark. We knew not how. We rode through the storm with heart in hand and made a happy port. In response to Adams' statement, you and I ought not to die before we've explained ourselves to each other, Jefferson wrote back, We acted in perfect harmony through a long and perilous contest for our liberty and independence. Constitution has been acquired which, though neither of us think perfect, both consider as competent to render our fellow citizen the happiest and the secularist on whom the sun has ever shone. If we do not think exactly alike as to its imperfections, it matters little to our country, which, after devoting to its long lives of disinterested labor, we have delivered over to our successors in life who will be able to take care of it and of themselves. I always love reading these passages because, as we talked about last time, Jefferson is writing to a larger audience than just John Adams. Adams knows this and you know responds in kind, but it's just beautiful writing. Jefferson wrote that talking in person would have been preferable. As a historian, I have to say, we are grateful they couldn't, right? And Adams compared their correspondence to a bank that he could withdraw a letter of friendship and entertainment whenever he pleased. Fawn Brody, historian, gave an example of their most creative writing. Adams asked Jefferson if he would live his life over again from the cradle. And Jefferson said he would, that it had in all totality been a good world and more pleasurable than with pain given to both men. Adams then wrote back asking if he would live his life again forever like go from cradle to grave and just keep repeating for the end of time. But Adam said he could not, that, quote, eternal succession terrifies me as much as annihilation. Jefferson responded that he would, so long as he didn't have to be a child again or be an old man. He said, if I could be in that kind of sweet spot where he was doing things, he would definitely repeat that for the rest of time. Now, Jefferson also remained in close correspondence with both President James Madison and then James Monroe, and he was closely attuned to the political climate and the faction that he helped to lead. President Monroe even wrote to Jefferson for advice as he was finalizing the document that would become known as the Monroe Doctrine. Jefferson was deeply focused on the debate surrounding the admittance of Missouri as a state in what became known as the Missouri Compromise, and he predicted that the intense emotions would lead to a permanent fissure. Thomas Jefferson also returned, of course, to a life of science. He continued to serve as president of the American Philosophical Society, which he served since 1797, the year he was elected vice president of the United States. And he said that the Philosophical Society was the greater honor. <laughs> he served mainly as an advocate for American scientific development, working to reverse this thinking that Europeans had that America was in many ways secondary. And he wanted us to develop our scientists and thinkers. And we'll talk about the extent he goes in just a minute. Now, he, of course, returned to his favorite readings, including reading Plato's Republic in the original Greek, which hats off to him. Jefferson also devoted a good amount of thought to his faith. We often think about him as being atheist or with being a deist. There were all sorts of aspersions cast to him, but he puts a lot of thought into it. John Meacham wrote about how Jefferson composed a 46-page work as president titled The Philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth, extracted from the account of his life and doctrines as given by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then returned to this in his retirement, where he followed up with The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, extracted textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English. And you can 
just picture him. They said he took his razor blade and was extracting the parts from the Bible where he wanted to excise any of the miracles and any of the kind of extraneous performances on Jesus's part and just stick to the text. Now, like John Adams, Thomas Jefferson briefly flirted with writing an autobiography. He initially begged off saying that he couldn't write it when he was younger, he was too busy. But now that he's older, he, he no longer thought that it was valuable. He offered very little insight into his own personal life and ended up finding the whole enterprise to be pretty boring. By the time he gets to being sent to Paris, he wrote, I'm already tired of talking about myself. And that's just not the attitude to have if you're writing your autobiography. Famously, Jefferson will welcome the Marquis de Lafayette when he visits the United States in 1824 and even hosts Lafayette at Monticello for several weeks. He hugged the Marquis with tears streaming down both men's faces. And then there was a banquet in the unfinished rotunda at the University of Virginia celebrating Lafayette with Presidents Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe all present. Now, Lafayette felt comfortable enough to, in private, challenge Jefferson on the keeping of enslaved people on his property, which did put Jefferson on the defensive. The next year, there was a couple who wrote to Jefferson about their son, who was getting ready to get married, and they'd actually named the son for Thomas Jefferson. And they asked, what advice would you give to the son? He gave them 10 different things. And I, I love this. First, never put off tomorrow what you can do today. My dad always told me the reverse, by the way. Second, never trouble another for what you can do yourself. Very good. Third, never spend your money before you have it. I mean, Jefferson was such a contradiction here. Four, never buy what you do not want because it is cheap. It will be dear to you. Five, pride costs us more than hurt, hunger, thirst, and cold. Six, we never repent of having eaten too little. Seven, nothing is troublesome that we do willingly. Eight, how much pain have cost us the evils which have never happened. Nine, take things always by their smooth handle. I just think that one's pretty direct. Ten, when angry, count to ten. Before you speak, if very angry, count to a hundred. Now, Jefferson also focused a lot of his attention to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville that he helped to found in 1819. And I think when I was always growing up, I always just thought like, oh, you know, he signed on to it and did some of the you know official founding documents. But no, he was very involved throughout. It became a pet project for him throughout his retirement even writing to Governor John Tyler, the father of the future president, that a public university was essential to the Commonwealth's future and would kind of offset the northern colleges like Harvard, Yale, and what was going to become Princeton, with Jefferson wanting his university to be the premier institution of Western education. Jefferson appreciated his time at the College of William and Mary, but he said it was too tied to the Episcopal Church. He threw himself into the planning of the school, designing several of the buildings and even supervising the construction coming down from the mountain and that's several hours each way on horseback every day just to make sure that they're doing things the right way. And he selected the curriculum and faculty, telling James Madison that he'd spent about two, four hours every day going through the thousands of books that he wanted to include in the curriculum. He even innovated by introducing elective courses. That was not something you could do at most colleges. And then recruited James Madison and James Monroe to join the Board of Governors. You can see the influence of Jefferson in the design of the Grand Rotunda at the center of campus, notably instead of having a church at the center. And that would house the library. And then you can also see his influence in the what he called Academical Village. 
1825, he served as rector of the university when they first started admitting students, and he would leave some of his new library collection to the university. Jared Cohen wrote in the recently published Life After Power about an incident in 1825 when almost 20 students rioted on campus in a kind of drunken jubilation and how personally Thomas Jefferson took the episode, viewing it as a slap in the face for all of his efforts. Jefferson brought Madison and Monroe to a meeting with all of the students in order to find the culprits, but then burst into tears and was unable to speak. His hurt feelings turned to incensed anger when one of the culprits happened to be his great-grandnephew, and he accused him of undoing, quote, the last 10 years of my life. That's how personally he took this. The last year of Jefferson's life, however, was just completely consumed with the debt that he carried and what it was going to do to his daughter. Jefferson tried unsuccessfully to sell some of his land assets and then devised a plan to have a lottery where the recipient took a chance at winning various properties including to Jefferson's own horror, Monticello. They would say that Jefferson could live in the house until he died, but that the minute he died, it would become that person's. When the Virginia legislature debated the lottery's legality and then discussed giving Jefferson a large interest-free loan, the publicity will reach all corners of the United States, with many sympathizing with Jefferson's plight and the fact that there was a lot that we didn't pay Jefferson for up front. And notably, there's no pension for our former presidents or somebody like Jefferson, like Adams, who had given so much of their life in service abroad. When the bill finally passed, Jefferson's home was the listed price for the $10 tickets. But like I said, Jefferson could continue to stay in the home if he di- until he died, but there were no tickets sold. He died with over $107,000 in debt, which would be around $3.3 million today, and it would completely overwhelm his surviving daughter. Thomas Jefferson once wrote, All my wishes end where I hope my days will end at Monticello. And so it would be. We'll talk about his death next. Thomas Jefferson was mostly healthy through his early life, as we discussed in season one. He made himself run daily in college, and he took regular five-mile walks around Monticello. He knew which paths would lead for the longer distance that he wanted. He, towards the end, ate mostly fruits and vegetables and tried to eat as little animal fat or meat as possible. But illness would come for him. His last months would be spent in huge amounts of pain, as he developed an enlarged prostate and suffered from rheumatism, which is an inflation in the joints. Now, we had talked about Jefferson suffering from migraines throughout his entire life, which I, of course, suffer from as well, though they will ease at the end of his presidency. And there's some speculation that what he called migraines might have been stress headaches and the similarities in terms of what it would do to him. That's where maybe he was kind of misled. Jefferson also suffers from chronic diarrhea. He's not proud of it by any stretch, as you can imagine, and so we'll have all sorts of euphemisms for it. But this will be something he suffers from for a very long time, but will especially make him more exhausted as he aged. William Stern Randall opined that Jefferson may have actually been suffering from undiagnosed colon cancer. And Andrew Burstein wrote of a Dr. Watson who asked Jefferson if he had gonorrhea. So we still don't know exactly what was causing it, if it was something he ate, if it was something untreated, but this was something that was happening a lot. This is the reason that Jefferson insisted on going for horseback rides most days. He believed, and had read this somewhere, that trotting along on a horse would relieve his diarrhea. That would be by strengthening his bowels. I don't 
you know, again, he's a scientist through and through where he got that idea. That's the last thing I would want, frankly. And then he also gets very big into eating rhubarbs. He again reads that that's going to help cure it. To deal with this rheumatism, and again, that's inflation of the joint, he flirts with an experimental procedure where a tin tube will blow alcohol fumes into the bed of the patient under their bedclothes. Jefferson will come to his senses saying, I consider that an, an old crazy carcass like mine is not a safe subject for a new experiment. And I just thought that was funny. His second attempt to deal with the rheumatism will lead him to the warm springs of Virginia to bathe in the waters, but instead he gets boils all over his body. He wrote that, quote, a large swelling on my seat disables me from sitting, except on the corner of chairs. This is made worse than, get this, when Jefferson's doctor will apply, of all things, mercury and sulfur directly on his boils, and that will, of course, only make him even more in pain. In 1819, there will be these stories printed about Thomas Jefferson having blood poisoning, with some of them writing that he actually died. But he lives, he will survive. He suffers from brutal indigestion and then stoppage of the bowels, which Fawn Brody then looks at alongside of a loan that he makes for a Governor Nicholas of Virginia defaulting, leaving Jefferson out over $20,000 at a time when he can't afford to be more in debt. And so that that might have contributed to him getting this really bad indigestion and then his bowels stopping up. In 1822, he walked out of the Monticello home and a decayed step gave way, sending Jefferson sprawling and breaking his left arm from which would take, of course, a long time to recover. This added to a recurring wrist injury from when he had hopped a fence in Paris back in the 1780s, trying to impress Maria Cosway. But that wrist injury will flare up as he ages and, and be made worse in the cold winter months. He dreaded winter coming. When he turned 80 in 1823, he gave up his one major periodic excursion, which was traveling to Poplar Forest. It just became too much for him. In May of 1825, he developed even more bladder problems, a large prostate gland, and a urinary tract infection, with urinating causing such intense pain that doctors would prescribe a rudimentary catheter. And again, their designs would probably be horrific. When Lafayette had visited, Jefferson was semi-reclined on a couch. He was unable to stand, lay down, or walk. Lafayette sends over a hundred newer models from France, but they will arrive only after Jefferson passes. Jefferson was taking laudanum in large amounts towards the end in order to be able to sleep, as well as a mixture of honey and opium, steadily increasing his opium intake as his pain intensified. Henry Stevens Randall wrote about an incident in late 1825 where Jefferson had a sculptor come to Monticello to take a plaster life mask of him, but it dries much quicker than either Jefferson or the artist expected. Jefferson started shaking the chair to alert the sculptor that he was unable to breathe. The sculptor chiseled away and freed the terrified Jefferson. This horrifies his family, however. Towards the end, Jefferson added to the intense diarrhea a kidney infection, pneumonia, and then the boils on his backside. Like Adams, Jefferson will beg off from the semi-centennial of the Declaration to be held in Washington, and he deteriorated rapidly as the holiday approached, causing him to be bedridden. Never one to be bored, Jefferson would be seen in bed reading the Bible, Essaclus, Euripides, and Sophocles. 
On July the 2nd, 1826, Thomas Jefferson will fall into a stupor, and from there he would wake sporadically, but he spent almost all of the third in a near coma. At 7 p.m. on that evening, he awoke and asked, is it the fourth? To which the doctor replied, it soon will be, and Jefferson fell back asleep. He did not sleep restfully, waking every couple hours and was in intense pain, but by this point he started to refuse any opium. At one point, he sat up and started speaking, deliriously believing that he was talking to the Revolutionary Committee on Safety, saying, warn the committee to be on alert, and his hands were gesturing like he was writing. He laid back down. His servants adjusted his pillow, and his grandson put a sponge of water to his lips anytime he looked thirsty. On July the 4th, 1826, shortly before 1 p.m., Thomas Jefferson died at 83 years old in his bed in the alcove at his bedroom in Monticello. Jefferson's servant took a lock of his hair and he was placed in a wooden coffin likely made by his enslaved man, John Hemmings. Jefferson was born to the small cemetery on the western side of the mountain on the Monticello grounds the very next day near his childhood friend Dabney Carr and beside his wife Martha. A grave was dug in the wet ground, and the minister read from the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer over the message, I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Jefferson was explicit about not sending out invitations, but instead welcomed anyone who could show up. And that included a contingent of students from the University of Virginia, which actually included Edgar Allan Poe, then a student. But that also then excluded some people who were very close to him, including, of course, James Madison. Thomas Jefferson left Monticello to his daughter Martha, but his debts, as I said, were very close to $110,000, and she will be forced to sell Monticello and his furnishings and belongings in very close time. Jefferson also made good on his promise to Sally Hemings back in Paris in 1789, and the four adult children were freed on his death if they had not already been freed, along with any others connected to the Hemingses. He could free no other enslaved, and they would be sold and scattered in the ensuing months as Jefferson's debts were settled. Sally moved to Charlottesville, where she lived without incident until her death in 1835. If you're thinking about trying to find where she's buried, I I tried looking, and our best guess is it's underneath a parking lot at a hotel in Charlottesville that it had been a large kind of open cemetery that, of course, has been since built over. And so as of now, there are no plans for excavation, but just Again, a sadness that that comes with what happens in the aftermath. As we mentioned in episode two on on John Adams' death, there was a large funeral commemoration in so many major cities for the joint deaths of two founders and the architects of the Declaration of Independence, as well as two presidents, right, dying on the same day. Again, something that never happened before or since. Now, in terms of the gravesite, Thomas Jefferson had honored his friend Dabney Carr's promise and buried him at the simple plot within walking distance from his house. The two had made this arrangement back in their youth, but Jefferson wrote, Choose some unfrequented vale in the park. There is no sound to break the stillness, but a brook that bubbling winds among the woods. No mark of human shape that has ever been there unless the skeleton of some poor wretch who sought that place out of despair to die in. Let it be among the ancient and venerable oaks, interspersed some gloomy ever 
Harper Greens. Appropriate half to the use of my family, the other to strangers, servants, etc. When Dabney dies, as we talked about in season one, Thomas will put that plan into action, burying his friend underneath a great oak tree near where he was building his home at the top of their mountain. Jefferson then cleared out the rest of the section of the woods to build up the cemetery, adding landscaping and trees. When his wife died in 1782, she too was buried there, and Jefferson continued to add to the cemetery, with 12 others being buried by the time Jefferson died. Martha Jefferson's gravestone is today at the base of Thomas Jefferson's obelisk, and it reads, Torn from him by death, September 6, 1782. The first few times I went to Monticello, I just assumed she was buried with him and didn't have a marker, but instead she is marked. It's just going to be the base of his obelisk. Jefferson took great interest in his grave, again writing, quote, Could the dead feel any interest in monuments or their encumbrances? The following would be to my mains, and most gratifying on my grave, a plain die or cube of three feet without any moldings, surmounted by an obelisk of six feet each of a single stone, on the face of the obelisk to the following inscription, and not a word more. Here is buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, of the Virginia Statue of Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia, because by these, as testimonials that I have lived, I wish most to be remembered, to be of the core stone of which my columns are made, that no one might be tempted hereafter to destroy it for the value of materials. Jefferson's wishes were carried out when the tombstone was put in place as specified in 1833, seven years after he died, made of Vermont granite. One variation was putting the inscription on a marble slab and not directly on the granite. Jefferson's apprehension about the stone was misplaced. Instead of being destroyed for its materials, it was prized by souvenir hunters, leading his nephew to take off the marble slab in order to protect it. In 1837, an iron gate was placed around the cemetery, but the area fell into huge disrepair, with the wall crumbling away and the area becoming overgrown and neglected, particularly after the Civil War. Congress proposed replacing the headstone in 1878, so long as the government could take possession of the cemetery, but the Jeffersons wanted to be permitted to be buried in that cemetery, and so Congress balked. In 1882, $10,000 was provided for a new headstone, this time built of Virginia granite. The old tombstone was requested by the president of the University of Missouri on the grounds of Jefferson's role in expanding America westward and the role of Missouri in Lewis and Clark's exploration. Now, it does remain on the campus there at the University of Missouri, and the marble slab has been restored by the Library of Congress, with the reproduction now affixed to the marker in, on campus. But in the wake of the George Floyd incidences and a lot of vandalism done to a statue of Jefferson nearby, people were putting bags on his head or writing in front of it about Sally Hemings, they ended up putting an acrylic covering over the old tombstone, but you can still find it there at the University of Missouri. Jefferson's very place like Washington's was debated later by people thinking that Jefferson deserved a more prominent and accessible place. With proposals made to move him to Richmond's Hollywood Cemetery, where Presidents James Monroe and John Tyler, as well as Confederate President Jefferson Davis, were buried, Glenwood Cemetery in Washington, D.C., and then Arlington Cemetery. Adding to these concerns was that Monticello was by this point out of the Jefferson's family ownership, and now with the Levies, who we discussed in Season 2. Jefferson descendants formed the Monticello Graveyard Association to take care of the cemetery. This, of course, will become a huge bone of contention as we will later have the investigations into the DNA of Thomas Jefferson really kind of being started by members of this association when the Hemings' descendants will say, hey, we're part of that family as well, and we should have 
access to the cemetery. And so you can owe the cemetery as one of the linchpins to that. The grave site was visited by subsequent presidents, beginning with Theodore Roosevelt in 1903, who toured the home and then visited the grave site. Franklin Roosevelt continued his presidential grave site tour in 1936 with a speech at Monticello and then laying a wreath at the grave. Harry Truman did the same thing in 1947, and Gerald Ford swore in naturalized citizens on July the 5th, 1976, and then visited the tomb after. Ronald Reagan came for an unannounced trip by helicopter in 1984, and Bill Clinton ended his journey from Little Rock to Washington, D.C. with a trip to the home of the man whose middle name he bore just three days before his inauguration in 1993. George W. Bush visited in 2008, also conducting a naturalization ceremony, and Barack Obama brought French President Francois Hollande in 2014. In terms of your ability to visit Monticello, you're going to want to refer to the Monticello website and make sure to go through the official channels. I believe you have to have a grounds pass in order to take the walk up to the Monticello graveyard and be able to see Thomas Jefferson's gravesite. And so definitely make sure you're checking the days and, and times that the facility is open. But anytime that it's open, you're able to do it. And the way they have it structured is that you can either walk up or take the shuttle up and then they make a stop at the graveyard. And so you're able to get down and take a look at it or again if you're walking up or walking down and i usually do one or the other but that way i can stop by the graveyard and, and take my time and get pictures of the approach now the thing about it remember that it is a good walk from either the bus parking or from the mansion i want to say it's maybe a quarter of a mile from the mansion and it does go downhill it's over a brick path and so in terms of accessibility, you know, that would be something to kind of be aware of. But once you get near the graveyard, which they are in the process of expanding in the other direction, so not anywhere near where Thomas Jefferson is buried, but then to accommodate more people. But you can see all of this when you're approaching the graveyard. Now, what you'll see when you get there, if you're coming down from the mansion, is you will start to make out the different gravestones and then this large obelisk, which of course is Thomas Jefferson. And nice enough for all of us it is very close to the fence. And so as you walk around the perimeter of the fence, you get closer to Thomas Jefferson's gravesite. It's very well-maintained fence with, you know, the black iron grating. And then there is a, a gold plaque that's going to read about it being the Monticello graveyard and a private facility for them. But again, you do have all that access and you can put your phone in the openings of the fence to get that, that picture of the gravesite un, kind of unblocked from the fence. But there you'll find a very simple, to my mind, obelisk that reads exactly as Thomas Jefferson had written, you know, what he wanted to kind of be remembered for. And then along the base is something to make note of where you'll see his daughters and his wife. There's a little sign beside the gravesite that tells you who else is buried nearby so that you can make out, you know, for instance, his mother, his friend Dabney Carr, and then other family members as you're looking around that cemetery. Again, in terms of it being like one of the more prominent gravesites, it really isn't. You know, the obelisk is not as flashy as what we'll see with some of the other presidents. Again, it does kind of convey exactly what Thomas Jefferson wanted and in and of itself then is going to be pretty remarkable. Now, with this one, I visited 
I think maybe the most of any presidential gravesite, maybe with the exception of Rutherford Hayes's, where I worked there, so I'd go there pretty often. But with Monticello, you know, we went first when I was 10 years old. We did a trip to Washington, D.C. that I talked about in season two. And I remember us going to the gravesite after touring the mansion. And we were walking down. And back in this period, the parking was very different than it is today. And so that was one of the first things I recognized when I first started going on my own, is how different my memory was from the way the approach was back in 1993, obviously. But we did make a stop at the gravesite. And I remember this because my dad has a leaf that he found on the ground. And then we had just gotten an computer and he printed off a page that said you know this leaf was taken from the nearby graveyard of thomas jefferson and so every time i would walk by it in the hallway it's still hanging there today you know you would remember just how kind of important thomas jefferson was to my dad my dad has always really liked thomas jefferson they share the same first name and his contributions right but then also the the graveyard then you know being something that we did kind of as a family my next trip was in 2001 with my history trip uh i was a junior in high school and we did stop by the graveyard i don't remember anything kind of stand out about it but i do remember us stopping there and then on my trips that i've gone on i've definitely you know of course made time and spent some time by myself you know being there and not having any people coming or going and really being able to take in the kind of tranquility of the site and it's interesting where I've done it on the way up to the site, when I was looking at my previous photos, there was one trip where I walked up to the mansion and so took in the grave site before going into Monticello. And then in recent two years, I've done it on my way down. And I do think in some ways that that might be better, you know, as you take in the totality of the home and the grounds, you're then able to kind of make your peace with Thomas Jefferson. You know, again, I think the totality is the part I want to emphasize. You get the sense of a man who built two real monuments to himself, right? Monticello being, as he said, his thesis and having everything that he believed in, in terms of science and all this farming and botany and obviously architecture. And then where he ends up in this graveyard surrounded by his family and a very close friend. And that I think is, you know, the perfect kind of marriage between the entire of his life. Knowing that he wanted that site, knowing that his family has been you know, fiercely protective of him remaining there, even when they lost the rights to the overall home, that they wanted that site to be protected. I think that does speak volumes. And then the care that they've done in making sure that it is well maintained. And today, you would have no idea of the decay that that site had you know, at one point faced. And so that's something I think that does speak to Thomas Jefferson's legacy. There is a way to come to it and be a little overwhelmed, I'll be frank, where you're used to the embellishments maybe of other presidents, and then you see this granite marker, and it doesn't say that he's a president. It's one of the few that doesn't list that achievement. That's by design. That's something that he definitely wanted to leave us with, and maybe to get us talking. You know, And and when we evaluate his presidency, I think I always tell students, the reason we have the Jefferson Memorial, the $2 bill, the nickel, isn't because of his presidency, in my mind. It's usually about 
his contributions as a founder. And then, you know, the idea that he's this brilliant man who later generations will always kind of look up to. And you can think of the famous quote from John F. Kennedy with the Nobel laureate saying, this is the, the most brilliant minds all together at the White House since the time that Thomas Jefferson dined alone. And so again, that kind of reverence that we have for him in contrast with pretty simple marker, but one that belies you know, certainly the achievements that, that Jefferson would have. There's also a way to look at it as a kind of distancing measure, right? Where he is not surrounded by all of his children. He's not surrounded by all of the loves of his life. And so there is a way to look at this as the, the reason that he was so specific about the way he wanted to be buried was because there were certain finite divisions that he made in his life in terms of the way he compartmentalized how he lived his public versus private life. And that, I think, is on display in that gravesite as well. Now, in terms of his legacy, there are 17 different counties named after him. There's more than that in terms of the number of cities. We have a state capital in Missouri named after him. But when we think of the big Jefferson monuments, you can think of really two big ones. You might be aware that the Gateway Arch in St. Louis is technically a monument to the expansion. And then, of course, the Jefferson Memorial, which We'll explore it in later detail, but it's important to kind of think about that this was not an easy decision in the 1940s about, you know, whether we should dedicate the space and what design to Thomas Jefferson. And then in the years since, when we've had this new way of thinking about some of our founders, you know, Thomas Jefferson would not be the, the first one, I think, to be memorialized in 2024 if it, we were starting over again. When you go to the Jefferson Memorial, you know, it is making a complete kind of ode to Monticello with its domed roof. And there you have this giant statue of Thomas Jefferson surrounded by the text of some of his great speeches and then are kind of left in the solemnity. And it's interesting in the recent refurbishments, you know, that a lot of damage had been done to the roof over time. I think the contextualization is going to be something that we'll see really kind of amp up in years to come when it does kind of make us think about, you know, what are we doing by recognizing this one president in this space with a very grand memorial. And, and I think that's going to be something that future generations will really wrestle with. Now, Jefferson is one of the statues that the, that the Commonwealth of Virginia dedicates to the national statuary hall in the rotunda of the capitol building and so jefferson is on display in the rotunda one of several presidents and we'll explore each one as we go along but you can think of jefferson statues really all over and i've taken my photo with several of them including a statue of him at williamsburg that i can think of but statues of him there in washington dc at the capitol and then in other parts of the country I have a statue out here in Fountain Hills in Arizona. I have Fount Rushmore, they call it. And Thomas Jefferson's one of the presidents sitting beside George Washington. In Jefferson's case, he's holding a copy of the Declaration of Independence. And so again, you know, why Jefferson, not Adams? It's one of those things where I think, again, we're, we're looking to his founding status, but then also the, the breadth of his kind of contributions. But I think it's, it's the fact that, you know, 100 years ago, he was just a no-brainer when it comes to who we're going to put on Mount Rushmore. Jefferson made complete sense. 
uh, whether or not he does today. In recent days, they had the release of the new presidential greatness poll. And, you know, again, I think his evaluation is going to kind of fluctuate as we get into, you know, what does it mean to evaluate his presidency versus the breadth of his life? And then, you know, which one do we commemorate? Which one do we memorialize? And I think that's why when the statue that was being damaged in Missouri, one of the things that the president at the time said, you know, we're not going to let you guys vandalize these two things. We had promised the Jefferson family that we were going to take care of the original stone. And so regardless of how you feel about Jefferson in 20. 20, we are going to take care of that. The statue is a different thing, right? And I think that's going to be something that gets reevaluated as time goes along. But I think we are seeing where different places are rethinking the naming. And, and Jefferson's one of those where you just cannot divorce his family, his private life from his public service and big contributions in a neat way, the way he was able to. Of course, Thomas Jefferson's statue was a major flashpoint in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in August of 2017, where the different marchers were encircling Thomas Jefferson statue in front of the rotunda. And that's where this giant conflict really emerged, right? It was over that statue. And in the years afterwards, there has been an ongoing debate among University of Virginia students and faculty about bringing down the statue. And so this remains a pretty large flashpoint in terms of how we view Thomas Jefferson and one of the places that, you know, of course, has to really get into his details and try to uncover exactly what his contributions mean in, in light of his personal failings. I do want to end with him and then with John Meacham <laughs> when it comes to how we evaluate Thomas Jefferson. Like he, he is a brilliant man. And I wanted to use a poem that his daughter Martha found in a jewelry box that Jefferson gives her on his deathbed and says, don't open it until I'm dead. Life's visions are vanished. Its dreams are no more. Dear friends of my bosom, why bathe in tears? I go to my father's. I welcome the shore, which crowns all my hopes of which buries my cares. Then farewell, my dear, my loved daughter, adieu. The last pang in life is imparting from you. Two seraphs await me long shrouded in death. I will bear them your love on my last parting breath. So, I mean, we can debate <laughs> the greatness of Jefferson, but just a brilliant mind. And, you know, you wish he had our sensibilities and could see things in a perfect way. And he just is not going to be that person for us, guys. He's going to be a massive contradictions. And that's something that I think we're we're weighing and we're we're seeing at Monticello, at his gravesite, at the Jefferson Memorial, and we'll continue to do so. I want to close with the line from John Meacham's Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power. The little graveyard sits on the western side of the mountain. When dusk comes, darkness seems to fall slowly. To the east, shadows lengthen over the Ravana and over Shadwell. They fall over Monticello itself and over Mulberry Row. They fall over his pavilions and his gardens. Only then do the shadows fall over the remains of Thomas Jefferson, a man who always loved the light. When we come back in next episode, we will talk about Thomas Jefferson's close friend, James Madison, who also will get a nice long retirement, almost 20 solid years, and then be buried again on his estate at Montpelier. So you won't want to miss James Madison's tomb. Remember to check out visitingthepresidents.com where you can find previous episodes, links to associated readings for the presidential sites, my photos from trips, recommended readings, and so much more. You can also follow along on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Visiting the Presidents. Also consider supporting Visiting the Presidents by writing a review or donating through PayPal. 
All season, I've been bringing you content from William D. Gregorio's Complete Book of U.S. Presidents, Louis Pacone's The President is Dead, and I also highly recommend Brady Carlson's Dead Presidents. And then for Thomas Jefferson, I have several books that I want to bring to your attention. I gave you a lot of content from John Meacham's Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power. Definitely recommend Fawn Brody's Thomas Jefferson, An Intimate History. And then William Stern Randall's Jefferson, A Life. Now, of course, if you're interested in reading about the relationship between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings and then his own relationship with their enslaved children, I definitely recommend reading Annette Gordon-Reed's work. And she has The Hemingses of Monticello, An American Family, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, and then a very recent book that I haven't had the chance to read yet, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs. Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination, which I definitely have on my list, but I don't have it purchased yet. I'm always fascinated by her scholarship, and she's a great follow on Twitter as well. There are two books that deal exclusively with Jefferson's retirement and death, one by Andrew Burstein called Jefferson's Secrets, Death and Demise at Monticello, and then Twilight at Monticello, The Final Years of Thomas Jefferson by Alan Pell Crawford. And those two are great if you're looking for you know, getting into the nitty gritty and weighing, you know, certainly the big contributions, but also these things that are being kept out of you when Jefferson is dying and uh, then when we're establishing his legacy. So definitely recommend all of those. And with that, I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks when we go to James Madison in Mount Pelier, but I always look forward to seeing you out there on the road as we continue to visit the presidents. See ya. <laughs>